Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country and around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel, and I am happy, oh, even still excited to be with you for another edition of All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. As you'll discover by spending an hour with us each Friday morning or hereafter, because they're they're banked and and, uh, recorded, starts live at 10 o'clock Eastern, 7 o'clock Pacific on Fridays, and we'll take one of the issues of our day, many of which are not discussed particularly at all by our so-called leaders, and provide an in-depth analysis showing how we can apply libertarian values and approaches such that people everywhere will all rise together, frequently, of course, and not lamentably, at the expense of many powerful and established public interests. Well, today's topic is health care, the health care system. You know, I have a really good friend who delivered babies, and he came home about five years ago and told his wife, it was in December, I'm going to retire next year. She looked at him in surprise and said, well, do you mean in a couple of weeks or a year from a couple of weeks? And he said, no, I'm going to retire in a couple of weeks. I simply am tired of being over-administered by insurance companies, by the, by the government. I'm not able to practice medicine anymore. And regretfully, that's happened to a large number of medical doctors around our country. You know, when I was in the first grade, a long time ago, I'm getting up there in years, this was 1951, I had a kidney infection, and I'm told that penicillin saved my life, that I had blood in the urine, a fever, and the rest, a nephritis, I guess it was called, and I had a doctor, Dr. Muriette, never forget, who made house calls, who gave me that shot of penicillin at our house. For a long time thereafter, I would kind of jokingly tell people, you know, my favorite bumper sticker is, become a doctor and support a lawyer. I know I don't mean to be demeaning, but doctors notoriously are trusting people, they are trusted, and they trust other people as well, and they were making a pretty good living for a long time, so they get in the craziest types of business-type relationships, and sometimes it was pretty difficult to unravel these partnerships or whatever, and so uh, it was rather amazing. Unfortunately, as time has progressed, the money is now being made a lot more by administrators in insurance companies, billing firms, and the rest, instead of the healthcare practitioners. So soon, the way we seem to be going, everyone will have medical insurance, but unfortunately, no competent healthcare professional will take it because the only variable in this entire thing, as I have seen from the outside, is the reimbursement to the medical professionals, to the healthcare professionals, and that keeps going down. So 
if you want to start our health care administered by the equivalent of the Department of Motor Vehicles, that's particularly where we are going. Now, we started, remember, Hillary Care when the Clinton administration started. People saw through that and it wildly failed. But in effect, at least from my perspective, the so-called Affordable Care Act is basically Hillary Care uh, in a new venture. Uh, the policies are increasing. The, the weights for our uh, the insurance policies are increasing. The waits for medical care are getting longer. But the reality is, if po- you speak up politically and say, I'm going to repeal Obamacare, it's a political loser, and maybe it should be, because about 75, 80% of the people will think, oh, you don't care about me. So what you have to do from a rational standpoint is replace it with something. Enter our guest today, Dr. Clark Smith, a longtime friend of mine and a very competent, caring uh, GP, general practitioner as a medical doctor. And he's going to talk to us about patient power, I believe. Uh, he first educated me on this whole system of what we should do instead and bringing in medical savings accounts. I didn't know what that was before I talked to Dr. Clark Smith, but he talked to me about it. Basically, and we'll let him, because he's on the air with us today as our guest, probably I would estimate 70, 73, 75% of the people in our country can control our own health care. So we can afford it, we can deal with it, get the government out of that, and allow us to negotiate directly with our medical doctors and with our healthcare professionals and spend our own money on it. Then we will have an incentive to spend the money wisely. Well, let me tell you from my perspective what happens today. If I were to go to a medical doctor and say, Doc, I've got a knee problem. What's the doctor going to say? Well, Jim, do you want an MRI? What goes through my mind? Well, let's see. I'm on Medicare. I have Anthem Blue Cross as a backup. It's going to probably cost me something in the order of $17 to $25 for an MRI. So my answer is, sure, why not? I'm paying pretty good medical premiums for insurance. I might as well get the Cadillac. I might as well have the best at all times. Now, what would happen instead if I were spending my own money on this? And the doctor says, Jim, do you want an MRI? What would be my response? Logically, well, doc, what's it going to show me and how much is it going to cost? If you ask that question today to most medical doctors, they're not even going to know how much it costs because cost is not a part of the process. It's all ingrained. It becomes a game in a lot of ways. Billing, you can bill in one way and get twice the payback from the insurance companies for the same process as you can something else. So, we have a lot of long-time, caring, effective medical professionals. One of them is here on the telephone with us today. Dr. Clark Smith, welcome. Thank you for being with us on All Rise. Thank you, Jim. And you've pretty well summarized the whole problem. When it seems like it's free, uh, everyone takes advantage of it. And uh, sooner or later, the, uh, whatever it is you're giving away be- it becomes in short supply. And the next thing you know, uh, all kinds of funny things start to happen. And that's exactly where we are now. Uh, you know, I've... Thomas Sowell, who is a wonderful economist, uh, made the comment that the first law of economics is scarcity. 
there, there aren't enough of the goods and services that there is demand for, so that means that the cost would go up or be affected. And the first rule of politics is to ignore the first rule of economics. And I think that that's what we're both saying. But, Doc, before we get into this, tell us a little bit about your background and also tell us what it was like practicing medicine, say, 20 years ago. Well, I'm maybe one of the one of the few that can tell you what it was like practicing medicine 45 or 50 years ago, because uh, I started practice just before uh, Johnson, President Johnson, brought in his Medicare for all uh, fiasco, and uh, I've suffered through literally five decades of watching a proud profession be turned into a trade. And uh, all of the, or so many of the professional standards that, that uh, I grew up with and, and uh, revere have been uh, whittled away to the, way, to the point is that we're now pretty much faced with uh, sort of the McDonald's of medicine. Doctor, and, uh, doctor flesh, flesh that out a little bit. What, what are you talking about there more specifically? Well, when I started practice in 1964, uh, our, my first office visit charge was $6. Within a couple of years, it went to $8. And about this time, uh, the Congress was talking about one of the early forms of, of Medicare. And uh, very shortly thereafter, fees quadrupled to $25 or tripled to $25. And then it's just been an upward, upward climb ever since. And in the meantime, we've seen uh, the the profession become less uh, intimate, less personal. And uh, nowadays, most people would go into a medical clinic, and they'll be signed in by somebody at the front desk, and their temperature and blood pressure and weight will be taken by somebody else. And then a third person will sit down behind a computer and rattle off a bunch of questions to be entered because this is what Medicare requires. And finally, the doctor will come in, probably not sit down, uh, look his patient in the eye very, very infrequently as he stares most of the time into his computer, usually with his back to the patient. And when the whole process is over, he uh, says this is what will happen, and somebody else comes in and explains it. And uh, this depersonalization just is uh, really saddens me because it... Uh, it really takes the, the humanity out of what has been a, a proud profession for 3,000 years. Well, we used to be partners in our own medical care. And seemingly, we've really gotten away from that now, that the system, the the Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, whatever, doesn't trust us, that, that we, the government, know better than you, the patient. Am I on track with that, in your view? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and uh, Enoch Powell, who was one of the former ministers of health back in the in the uh, 1980s, said that whatever is entrusted to politicians becomes po- political, even if it is not political anyhow. And basically, that he was dead right on it. And of course, he had the experience of the National Health Service for uh, at least 20 years prior to to that statement. But basically, medicine has become political, and uh, I believe it probably started, at least to me, it started sometime in the 1980s 
when a General Motors official was quoted in Time magazine as uh, becoming aware that medical care for his for the employees at General Motors was costing more than the steel in the cars that they produced. And this became widely recognized in, on Wall Street, and the, uh, the medical entrepreneurs or those who would like to be entrepreneurs in medicine uh, smelled blood, and uh, immediately we started to see lobbying in Congress and so on in order to somehow get their fingers into this big, rich medical pie. Well, Clark, you started, as you said, in about 1964. My understanding of history was that we had uh, wage and price controls to some degree during World War II. uh, And then in the Nixon administration, we really had some wage and price controls. So there were companies, because we didn't have... uh, uh, benefits, medical benefits provided by employers prior to Nixon mostly, but if Nixon put wage controls in place and you were an employee or potential hire that I really wanted to entice, I couldn't give you higher wages, so I rousted about trying to figure out how I could entice you to come to my company, and it started to be healthcare benefits. And so that's how we began. Is that that your understanding as well? So then we got government more involved in our healthcare, and it's only gotten worse every year since then. It goes back a little further than that, Jim. During World War II, when the men were all uh, at war and women entered the workforce and were actually winning the war by producing the the war material that we needed, uh, there was a tremendous need for, for employees. There was wage and price controls, and so employers couldn't entice good workers into their factories with uh, higher wages, and so uh, I'm sure with the government's involvement, the idea of health insurance was offered to the to the female workforce, and as you can imagine, it was very, very popular. And so by the time the war ended, the idea of health insurance was, was fairly well ingrained. And uh, at that time, insurance was fairly inexpensive because... Healthcare overall was not all that expensive. We did not have the the incredible technology, and so uh, it, it worked just fine for a long time. And a long time took us into the 80s and 90s. And by then, uh, health insurance was uh, totally ingrained in the population's uh, uh, income scheme. And uh, then it turned to the politicians saw a good opportunity to start taking control of the whole thing, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Well, it's resulted in enormous inequities as well, because if I work for a large company, uh, General Motors, uh, General Electric, whatever, they have a lot more power, a lot more strength, a lot more bargaining position, so they get a better response with regard to... uh, uh, the, the medical care, they get lower prices. But if I'm working on my own, if I'm self-employed, if I work for a smaller company, I don't have that power. So my prices are higher, which makes no sense to me. But that's what I've seen, again, kind of making it a game. Is that what you see from a professional perspective? Yes, and uh, about the only way it can be uh, really countered on the part of, a, of an individual or a small uh, shop owner is to uh, become a little bit more creative and work on the premise that 
there really at any one year, at any one time, or, any, or during any given year, uh, 70% of medical expenses are going to be uh, practically nil. And only about 2.5% of all insurance claims are, are large claims. And so in a, in a marketplace, which you and I believe is, is what controls or should control this, in a normal marketplace, that small shop owner would find in the neighborhood, almost invariably, uh, doctors and, and suppliers who would provide the medical services at a very, very fair rate. And at this time, for instance, a, a CAT scan, a chest CAT scan, runs around eight or $900 in most hospitals. But there is a hospital over in Torrance that uh, will do it for 400 or 450 you mean so you mean I, competition patient, matters? You're, you're competi- not telling me that, that incentives and competition matters, are you, Doctor Clark? Competition, Mike, competition is all that drives anything that we do in humanity. It just gets course, dressed up in different uh, costumes. Of course it does. And when we come back on the next segment, we've painted a pretty bleak picture of our medical care at the moment, but we're going to say help is on the way because we're going to talk about a way to get around and behind this through medical savings accounts with Judge Jim Gray and Dr. Clark Smith. Help is on the way after this message. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, hello and welcome back to All Rise. And the purpose behind this, as you know, probably, when judges enter the courtroom for the first time, the bailiff usually shouts out, all rise, and people stand up, not out of respect for the individual, but for respect for the system. Here, in this show, 
the all rise means if we employ libertarian values, you know, libertarian approaches to these various problems, and you're going to hear one just in a few minutes on healthcare. Everybody, we will all rise together. So that's kind of where we're going. We have Dr. Clark Smith, a longtime medical professional, medical doctor in Anaheim, California, on with us as our guest. So it's been pretty bleak so far in our discussion, Dr. Smith. But uh, tell us, help is on the way. You are the first person that explained to me the concept of medical savings accounts. Uh, please, to the degree our listeners don't understand this, tell us what that means. What is it? Well, a health savings account is just a, a matter of becoming your own insurance company for everyday expenses. And uh, because the statistics are such that in any given year, only uh, a small percentage, less than 10% of, of any given population are going to have serious medical expenses. Uh, the vast majority of individuals during any one year are going to have little or no expenses. So why should they be paying out two and three thousand dollars for a month for expenses that are not going to occur probably but once or twice in their lifetime to that extent? And so back in the in the early 1990s, when I was thinking about this, it turned out that two other individuals, a Dr. Goodman down in in uh, Texas and a Mr. Musgrave back in Michigan, it seems like all three of us had about the same idea at the same time. And that was merely that why doesn't a person set up a little account for themselves, put their money into that account, and whenever they had expenses, pay them out of pocket and have a high deductible health insurance so that when they become became that that one of 4% in any given year, they would have insurance to take care of the large ongoing expenses and their deductibles would be easily uh, met with their own medical savings account. So as so I we, understand it, if I, because I can afford my own medical care, so get the government out of my relationship, let me do it myself. So you're saying a medical savings account, I would take for example, $5,000 every January and put it into the equivalent of an ATM account, uh, which would be mine. And I can spend it as I will. From that, I can spend, I can purchase health care insurance with a high deductible, say a $5,000 deductible. And then when I go see a medical doctor, uh, I'd look at them, my, or my, my, uh, pharmaceutical care, my, my medicines, and I could spend my money out of my medical savings account, and then if something cat catastrophic hit me, then my insurance would come into play. But I'd always be spending my own money, which would make it competitive. And then if I didn't spend that whole $5,000 in one year, as I understand it, that would roll over to next year such that that would accrue to my benefit even toward my eventual retirement. Am I pretty much on po point with that, Dr. Smith? That's exactly right. And in fact, uh, the little nation state of, of Singapore back in 1955 did exactly that. And they set up for their, for their citizens there uh, what they call a central provident fund, and what they do is they they pay into that uh, during their lifetime. They pay for their own expenses, and uh, they can buy life insurance. Uh, they all have high deductible insurance, 
And uh, out of those savings, as they grow, if they want to borrow from it to, uh, for college expenses or for buying a house, they do. But they take care of all of their, their small expenses out of their, their health savings account or what they call their, their central provident fund. And uh, the health care in Singapore is therefore very affordable, very available, and not crushingly expensive. So this has been going on for over half a century. It's just that our politicians don't, uh, don't see how they can make any money out of that kind of a, an arrangement. Sure. Well, what would happen, what would health care be like for all of us if, in fact, we brought competition back? In my opinion, you'll have a lot more ingenuity, creativity, uh, prices will come down. But, but, but tell us from your side as a GP, uh, how, how would competition make a difference in your medical practice again? Well, it would. Everybody would uh, would benefit from it, Jim. It's it's just one of these situations. Like a, imagine Seville Row in in London, where you can buy a a beautiful suit for only five thousand dollars. But also in that same row, you can find providers of of fine clothing at much less expenses. You know, at, at reasonable expenses, and with the exception of the very, very exotic medicine that has to be practiced in, in uh, university hospitals and so on, the vast majority of things that are done are done by people like myself. Uh, I like to say that common diseases are common, and common diseases do not require the, the kind of, of uh, exotic care that is available. Meantime, we're seeing just some of the most egregious uh, offenses being committed. Example, several weeks ago on a Friday night, one of my patients had a severe headache. She went to the emergency room at the local hospital, and anything involving the head, nowadays you get a CAT scan. I think your profession has helped that along tremendously. Anyway, they, they ruled out a stroke. They ruled out any of the serious things, head injury, internal cranial bleeds, and so on, and sent her home. And believe it or not, the next Friday, she got another very, very severe headache, went back to the same emergency room, was examined exactly the same way, including another several thousand dollar CAT scan. Finally, third week, Friday night, same thing happened, and would you believe it? She got her third CAT scan. Now, there's a lot of radiation involved with, with the CAT scans, and a CAT scan of the head is the equivalent of 70, 70 chest X-rays. Mm. So this poor lady had the equivalent of, what, 2,100 uh, you know, 2, chest X-rays just because she had headaches three times in a row, Sounds a little bit like migraine to me, but I'm, you know, what do I know? I'm just a GP. Yeah. But all of this was ruled out, and uh, she practically glows in the dark now, but she was satisfied that she did not have anything serious. In a, in a normal marketplace, none of this would have happened. I, I just can promise it. If nothing else, she would have gotten up on her hind legs and said, what do you mean? This is exactly the same thing that I had last week. Why are you getting another CAT scan? Well, 
the poor doctor orders the CAT scan, probably against his better judgment, because he has an employment contract with the hospital. What's called, you know, as a as a uh, uh, contract of adhesion, and uh, he uh, has no choice but to do it, or be criticized by his employer and very possibly fired Monday Monday over the lunch hour. And so yeah. uh, tremendous forces are, are pressing on us, and uh, they're coming from people that have no business in, in pushing those decisions when you and I know that the decision made between the doctor and the patient where there's, there's been honest disclosure is probably going to be a fraction of the cost. Well, you had, you had mentioned something in that rather horror story uh, that really causes me some, some embarrassment, and that is my profession, the legal profession. Unfortunately, because of medical malpractice cases, and sometimes they're flourishing, we require doctors, in effect, to protect themselves from their own patients, so they give tests that really aren't necessary, but they're fearful of being in court. What? You didn't give that CAT scan again? Sort of thing. So I, I agree with that. But Dr. Smith, so you and I can take care of our own health care needs. Uh, it's my understanding that most people who are healthy uh, throughout most of their lives spend $4,000 or appreciably less per year on their own health care needs. So if this were a $5,000 deductible, in effect, medical savings account, they would roll over at least a minimum of $1,000 for next year. But what about the people that cannot afford that? Uh, in my view, what we should do, because we get the government out of our health care, how about if we were to have a system of vouchers on a sliding scale, okay, paid by the federal government to people that they could use those vouchers in the private market sector, they could purchase medical insurance, and even if they couldn't afford some co-pays, that would be done on a sliding scale, but that would still allow competition to come back to our medical system, as well as what you called patient power, or having the customers, the patients, be a partner in their own medical care. Would you go along with the vouchers idea? Absolutely. That's uh, We could just call it wampum. And you <laughs> could take your beads in and trade them. And if not, uh, save your wampum for, for a, a rainy day. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it just doesn't seem to have a lot of traction because it just does not allow the kind of shenanigans that uh, the business community, the legal community, uh, the uh, the pharmaceutical community, and uh, most importantly, the uh, the government community, all find it uh, something that would not uh, line their pockets quite as as uh, easily as what we're doing now. So that's what you see in your general practitioner practice, is that right? That uh, mm -hmm. the government just keeps intruding upon your practice of medicine. Uh, are you thinking, like my friend who I opened this uh, program with that retired uh, in about two weeks because he just simply wouldn't have his medical practice governed by all these administrators? Is that kind of the, the direction that a lot of quality health care providers are going in? It is just, it's just sad. Let me, let me just give you a little quick thing. The number that I, that I read covering uh, statistics in, in 2017, there were 450 physicians committed suicide oh. in that year. And uh, this is just way above what, what you would normally expect. And 
uh, it is just from the, the constant pressure to do more and more and more and achieve less and less and less in medical care. Uh, everybody, I think, knows about the, the coding, the CPT coding, that all illnesses have a, have a number that, that is assigned to it that uh, is used for billing insurance and for, unfortunately, uh, keeping government statistics. Well, that number used to be uh, about 9,000 CPT codes for all the different things that can, can befall humanity. But just over the last two years, we've converted to C, gone from CPT-9 to CPT version 10, and it has gone from 90, up to now something like 70,000 different codes. And there's a, a whole sub-profession in medicine of coding where people just do nothing but figure these, these multi-number codes out and uh, have to record them and turn them into the insurance companies and, of course, to the government so they can keep their statistics. And uh, it's just a, just a horrible t- waste of time. Uh, this conversion required changes in computers all over the country, so the, the electronics industry benefited. And uh, it, it's, every, everything seems to happen for somebody else's benefit Except the patients and the physicians. Yeah, the, it's it's dictated by the administrators. Uh, you know my wonderful wife. In fact, your wonderful wife introduced me to my wonderful wife. So we'll owe you an eternal debt. But she was had her own physical therapy clinic, and uh, so she ended up merging with a partner. And the partners, one of the attractive features was, well, look, you know, you are doing some workers' compensation cases. You're not billing them as well as you might, and so. We have somebody that can bill them much better. So once they merged, they had that billing employee do that. And we, she received something like twice the reimbursement for the same modalities, for the same uh, actions with her patient. And uh, it was just a game. Unfortunately, then the billing, the very bright billing lady uh, went somewhere else and it came down to the, the same amount she was making before. But it is, it's just a game. It's, it's just amazing, shocking to me that, like you say, there were 9,000 CPT codes a few years ago. Now there's 70,000. Imagine the earth-shaking bureaucracy that's going to be involved in that as well as just trying to figure it out or the games that go with it. So it's driven a lot of medical doctors to institutions like Kaiser Hospital, I believe, or to concierge care, where they have a, a contract with some of their higher paying patients who simply pay the doctors a certain amount of money, and then they can go see the doctors basically whenever they want to for no charge, as I understand it. Uh, do you see a lot more concierge treatments involved now, Dr. Smith? Well, the way we're drifting is toward a British-style national health system which uh, uh, takes care of 95% probably of the, of the population. And then we have Harley Street and all the specialists scattered over, over England who basically are concierge doctors. And uh, it, it's rather interesting in the last oh, decade, there's been a move toward uh, pri- private health insurance in England. And uh, when you look at at the advertisements in in London newspapers for for mid-level and top-level jobs, the number one perk there is not a car, 
It's health insurance. Yeah. Well, doctor, and, you're, you're perfect as a guest because you're leading us into our last segment. We're going to talk about social, socialized medicine in Britain, Canada, and the direction we're going now. We'll talk about those horrendous results when we come back after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Good messages indeed that we just heard, but you're going to hear some more here back on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray, and our guest are the esteemed Dr. Clark Smith, a general practitioner from Anaheim, California, for numbers of years. We've been talking about landmines that have been placed in our way between the patient and the uh, by the medical doctor and all the bureaucracy that we've come into, let's go to, in some ways, the logical extreme of that, and that is Britain. Okay, I've, I've spoken to some people here that were traveling in Britain, and they had some form of uh, prop medical problem, and they got free medical care, and even though they're not members of the Britain community, they had it, it was done free. Oh, they were very pleased. But what really happens, I understand in Britain now that of course, the, the government is paying for this medicine and they're seeing, oh my gracious, you know, obesity is costing us money. That people get heavier and heavier, they have more medical problems. We, the government, are having to pay those medical problems. So there's a definite movement now into controlling people's calorie intake. I mean, you're going to have the government issuing sanctions if you eat some some fried foods or whatever it's just a logical extreme dr clark smith is this how you see our country in effect going and do you see that's what's happening in england today well it, it, on, on uh, a sort of a local national basis we've had uh, uh, an assault on 
soft drinks and sugary drinks. And now, just in the last few weeks, we're being told about uh, meatless Mondays. And, uh, yeah, all of these things are, are aimed at at uh, curbing obesity, which is probably one of our most serious uh, medical problems that we have, and I might add one of the most intractable. So well, uh, if somebody else is paying the bill, then they'll, they'll figure there's, there needs to be done something about that. And that's kind of where we're going. That I was actually on the board of directors for a local YMCA a while ago, and one thing I brought up was, okay, look, we're not going to be talking about nutrition if, on the other hand, we go to our own uh, dispensing machines and we have soft drinks in there and, and potato chips, so let's change what we do. But that's not by government fiat. That's because of education and, and health care and the rest. But if you have the government, which is happening in, in England today, because it's costing them more money, what's the government's response? Oh, pass another law. Let's say it's going to be illegal to use more than two Coca-Colas a week or whatever else, which would just be a disaster in my view. Of course, they're trying to be involved with social engineering anyway by putting more taxes on soft drinks and probably uh, potato chips and the rest. But is this what you see happening in our country as well, Dr. Smith? Yes, and the, the rationing, of course, when, when there's uh, any service is, is uh, difficult to get and expensive, there tends to be rationing. And in England, they ration by the queue, as they call it. Uh, you have a, need an x-ray, sure, you can get it in two weeks. You need a CAT scan, you can have it in, in six months. And uh, if you don't like it, you can go to the private sector and get it done there. So this is a form, a form of rationing by, by the queue. Uh, the way we're doing it in this country is that since the, the Americans just won't put up with that kind of baloney, and so what, what the insurance industry and government has done is they're now, instead of rationing by the queue, in this country we're rationing by hassling the doctors. And so if I want to, to order a medication which is not on the formulary, not the... Not the uh, bread and butter medications that we use, but something just a little different or a little more convenient or a little bit more effective, they'll turn around and I'll, it'll be refused. And then they'll tell me that if I want to fill out about four pages of forms saying, what have I done in the past? What's this problem, person's problems? Uh, have I had any consultations on it? What medicines have I used in the past? what medicines are the patients uh, allergic to, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum, then uh, I might be able to get that drug approved for that particular patient. patient doesn't know anything that went on behind the scenes other than that maybe it took a week or 10 days or two weeks to get the information, depending on how quickly I responded. But I get hassled on it. So what happens the next time I think that I'd like that, uh, a, the next patient to have that particular medication? Do you think I'm going to order it? Not likely. If I'm going to have to spend a whole lunch hour figuring out all the questions that are asked in order to approve that medication. So this is the, the standard operating procedure all across the, uh, in, the insurance industry in uh, healthcare in the United States. A little different well, from... A little different from England, but it's achieving the same purpose. Dr. Smith, let me change gears a little bit because 
when you're talking about as to medications and, and being fearful of prescribing it again, uh, it's my position that we have tens of thousands of people in our great country that are in unnecessary pain. And why? Because their medical doctor is intimidated away from prescribing pain medication because the DEA is overlooking them and, and they could be punished, they could lose their license, etc. Uh, what's your experience with regard to pain medication and the DEA? Because I see it as police officers are practicing medicine. Well, that intimidation is, is reaching a fever pitch right about now. Uh, about 10 years ago, it was, it was uh, popular all across the country to consider pain as the fifth vital sign besides temperature, weight, blood pressure, height, uh, heart rate, and now they wanted to add what's the pain level, and they came up with that little cutesy thing with the faces, uh, little smiley faces and frowny faces, so that you could estimate your pain level from 1 to 10. And uh, I think that probably that was the beginning of, of our opioid addic- epidemic now, but we no longer use that that uh, smiley face thing very much, and uh, actually we just are so intimidated that I'm sure that there are many people that would benefit from something a little stronger than ibuprofen or Motrin or, or Aleve or whatever, and uh, uh, it just doesn't get done because doctors are losing their license, and one of my colleagues not so long ago was thrown in jail for a couple of years not for illicitly prescribing uh, pain medicines, but for just not prescribing it in a way that Sacramento thought was appropriate. Sure. Well, and when it comes down to it, what difference does it make if somebody who has an incurable disease, say cancer or whatever else, if they happen to be addicted to prescription medicine, what difference does that make? At least it's a crime to have had them be in unnecessary pain. Have I convinced you, Dr. Smith? <laughs> You've convinced me, <laughs> absolutely. And yeah. uh, of course, with with these uh, seventy thousand different codes, we should be able to to code it out if the person knows how to do it. That might tip it off to somebody in the bureaucracy if they know how to read those codes. That yes, this person is uh, you know has a short lifespan and deserves to be kept comfortable. Nobody would argue that this is the perfect time for opioids, and let's not worry about the addictiveness of it. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen very often. No, it's the intimidation factor. And again, uh, even as to the various drugs on the Controlled Substances Act, uh, it's decided by the head of the DEA instead of the Surgeon General. Again, the police are practicing medicine. Uh, let me let me tell our listeners that I, I took this on every Monday for the last three years. I've written something called Two Paragraphs for Liberty. And one of my early editions was talking about the terminally ill and the crime that is occurring today. That look, if I have an incurable illness, why should the government tell me that I can't take an experimental drug? Maybe I go to Dr. Clark Smith, who's looked into these things, and, okay, there's this drug. It's not been cleared by the FDA yet, and it's experimental. It might not help. In fact, there might be some side effects. But why should I not be able to have some chance? Maybe I have a 3% chance of this drug helping me. Otherwise, I'm going to die. That's my decision, not the government's decision from my standpoint. It's, an, it's just an abomination 
nation to have my 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 situation run by a police officer and look let my death mean something maybe i can at least be successful in showing what does not work so if any of your my listeners here would like to get on my list of two paragraphs for liberty on the email every monday send me an email at jim p gray jim p is in peter gray g r a y at sbcglobal.net and i'd be happy to put you on my list doctor what do you think about the fda as well as these issues it takes a decade and something on the order of multi millions of dollars tens of millions of dollars to get any pharmaceutical matter approved what do you think of the fda in action well it it's bogged down in the same kind of uh, bureaucratic concrete that seems to affect uh, uh, getting our infrastructure in this country straightened out or uh, getting a new airport built or anything else. They just they just can't seem to move. Uh, quick little anecdote that will over, overlie this whole thing. Back a number of years ago, I had a patient that came back from a visit to Portugal, and while there she had eaten some some sausage that apparently was not thoroughly cooked, and uh, by the time she got home, she was having uh, uh, terrible diarrhea and started to pass little chunks of this parasite that had grown in her in her intestine. And uh, I tried the usual things, and they didn't work. And going to the literature, I read that there was a particular medication that was considered experimental, and uh, I tried to get it and found that this was available only to physicians who were approved by the National Health Service. And uh, I had to apply to Atlanta, Georgia, for permission to use this medication. And they sent me a 15-page document to fill out to explain uh, uh, my bona fides and also what I intended to use it for. And uh, I was maybe halfway through that when I spent the evening, my wife and I, with a close friend who's a veterinarian that had taken care of our dogs since we moved to California. And he laughed and he says, oh, he says, we, we worm dogs with that all the time, exactly the same medication and same dosage, everything else. And uh, I've got to admit, I took a, a card of those from him, gave them to my patient with with the understanding that she knew exactly what we were doing. And by golly, she was, as they say in the business, wormed and very, very uh, happy with the outcome. Uh, now, this is just so typical of the kind of constraints we have. I can understand why they would, they would want to make sure that the medications are not toxic, but that was already, had already been determined. And so why 15 pages of trying to explain why and what and where I, I came from in order to be able to get this woman out of her, uh, she was driving her crazy. Well, so, Dr. Smith, I, I have bad news for you. You're a good, caring, competent physician, and for doing that, you're under arrest. <laughs> Mia culpa. <laughs> Yeah. Let me ask you another medical question that's been on my mind for a while. At the age of about 40, I started taking a baby aspirin every day uh, in order to prevent uh, strokes and and blood thinners. Uh, And I've talked to a lot of medical doctors and asked them that question. Do you take a baby aspirin uh, maybe four or five times a week or not? I take a baby aspirin every night at bedtime 
because it's most effective 12 hours later, and most men's heart attacks occur between 9 a.m. and noon. And so if you take your aspirin at bedtime, it is most effective at the very time of day that we need it. And this came out of a, a Harvard study of which I was one of the subjects, ran on for seven years, and then they told us that, uh, it told me that I was taking a, a placebo and that I should switch over to a regular aspirin, which they were supplying every single month. And uh, it turned out that this was a very, very effective uh, protection for males uh, for heart attacks, which is the number one killer. They didn't, then did the same thing for women, and it cuts women's risk of a stroke by 47% and uh, uh, is perfectly right for women to take. So you've been doing the right thing, and uh, despite some of the recent little little bits that have come out saying, oh, maybe we shouldn't be taking aspirin, maybe it's not such a good idea, the bottom line was that this was a study that ran on for over seven years with 22,000 physicians. Uh, guinea pigs in the in the process. None of the information that has come out recently begins to even approach the the, the thoroughness and the care that that Harvard study did. Well, so, Doctor uh, Smith, you and I uh, are going to. I violated one of the cardinal rules of litigation. I just asked a question that I did not know the answer to, but you reaffirmed it. And we, we here on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray, we talk about things openly, honestly, fully, with the understanding that if reasonable people don't ask these questions and discuss them, unreasonable leaders will exploit them. That they pit us against each other. Uh, I'm good, you're evil, that sort of thing. That's not what we do on all rise. We employ these principles, we will all rise together. So we've discussed in this segment uh, our medical health care system. We have numbers of medical, wonderful medical health care professionals that are no longer taking Medicare. They're no longer t getting involved in this bureaucracy that has been inflicted upon us by government. You know, I've said this before, I'll say it again, I'll say it always. Big government is really, really good and effective, at least at one thing, and that's increasing the size, the cost, the bureaucracy of big government. We've been talking about it here with regard to health care for all and the rest, uh, and the, the really undercutting our health care system, which once was the very best in the world. Let's go back to creating issues in which we have patient power, in which we are partners in our own health care, dealing with professional health care providers that will be able to talk with us, be controlled, of course, by the norms. If you go below the standard uh, in, in your practice, you should be held accountable, but by the professionals, not by the government. So that's our our program here, we've talked about the way that we can get back to competition and lowering prices, increasing ingenuity, and that is, like, gov like uh, Dr. Clark Smith said, originally told me, medical savings accounts for all of us who can control our their own costs, get the government out of our lives. And for those that cannot, let's use a system of vouchers to let them participate in the free market system as well. So there you have it. You know, in many ways, life is complicated, but in so many other ways, it can be straightforward. There's a difference between simplistic and simplified, but the simplified way is allow the free market to work. Allow us to be responsible for our own actions, both as medical professionals as well as patients, and get the government 
reduced effects in our in our lives. That's using libertarian approaches for the benefit of us all. And understand again that if responsible leaders don't discuss these, irresponsible leaders will. So that's where we are. Please tune in again next week to, uh, in effect, listen to All Rise, because we are Americans all. We're open to free, full, and honest discussion, pulling together for the common good. And when we regain this spirit, we will all rise together. So thanks again. We'll talk to you again in another great segment of All Rise, The Libertarian Way with Judge Gray with another exciting guest. In the meantime, remember, life is good. Enjoy it fully. Be well. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, The Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my ball.